Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. We are recording this episode on Thursday, May 27th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, May 30th. All right. So on this episode, we will have a special interview with our guest from the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Uh, we will also be discussing the University of North Carolina's conflict with their esteemed alumni, Nicole Hannah-Jones. We have some good news from the world-famous Louvre Museum, and we will also be discussing in our World News segment, the arrest of a Belarusian journalist. So let's go ahead and kick off our local news segment. Emily, why don't you bring in our guest today? All righty. I am so excited to uh, have this interview we have today, and we actually have someone from the NYU Grossman School of Medicine here to introduce the the guest as well. So Judy Zelikoff is back. She was on our show as a guest uh, about a month ago, I think, um, talking about her own research and her own work. And um, she is also a director of the Community Engagement Program um, with the School of Medicine. So um, she's here as sort of that person, um, that connecting piece for that partnership with Radio Free Brooklyn. So thank you so much, Judy, for joining us, and I'll let you introduce our guests. Thank you. It's really nice to be back, Emily. Um, It's my pleasure to introduce my colleague and my friend, Dr. Terry Gordon, and his senior doctoral student, David Luglio. And I'll just tell you a little bit about Dr. Gordon. He received his PhD at MIT in toxicology. And as was said, he is a professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And we both are in the Department of Environmental Medicine. He has over 100 publications in the area of inhalation and pulmonary health, toxicology, genetic susceptibility, exposure assessment, and tobacco and alternative tobacco science. He has a very long list of accolades, and one of them includes his service for many years as chair of the Threshold Limit Values for Chemical Substances Committee, where he had a leading role in making work environments safe and healthy for workers worldwide. He is here today with his graduate student, David, who was the first author of the paper, to discuss their groundbreaking and somewhat disturbing recent publication on air pollution in New York City and other northeastern city subway systems. So, Dr. Gordon, you're on. Good evening. How are you doing, Judy? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, uh, Terry and Judy and David, for all being here. So, Terry, can you explain what environmental medicine is? Yes, I I can try, but I I can't do it perfectly, actually. Mm -hmm. We've been doing environmental health research, looking at different environmental factors. Myself and Judy, it's always been pretty much air pollution, some water pollution, and how that affects human health and using different models to, to study human health effects. Yeah, I think that that's pretty clear. And of course, I think, you know, different people will explain it differently, um, which I think is pretty interesting. And um, I know that Judy talked about um, pulmonary health. And can you explain what that means as well? Well, your lungs are one of your most important organs, and it's exposed to the environment with every breath. So for pulmonary health, we're interested in how those things in the air that aren't supposed to be there, the toxic particles and gases affect how your lungs operate. 
Great. And so um, I think we can just dive in then to the core of the story, which Judy mentioned. Um, And this is something we have covered on the show. Um, We talked a couple months ago about the story that uh, was published in The Guardian, which is where I got the information from it when I covered the story. Um, which so again, it's I'm thrilled to be able to talk to the people who actually did the research behind that story. It, it's super exciting and what an honor. Um, so I guess we can just start with like Terry and David. Um, would you talk about um, the main findings from that work you did and sort of um, what that research was? Well, we previously had looked at the air quality in the New York City subways a few years ago, and we found that the levels of particles in the air were were really high, much higher than you might encounter if you were on the walking on the streets of New York City. So we wanted to expand it. So David designed the study. So we look at the air quality in New York City, whether it was the MTA system, the PATH system, the LIRR, and then we looked in Boston and Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia and compared the air quality in those cities with the New York City subways. The main findings were, <coughs> excuse me, the main findings were that the air quality in all these subway systems was poor. There was much more particle pollution in the subway stations that commuters and workers encounter every day than if one was above ground. And David, so what was that research process like? Yeah, so um, we had these handheld instruments, um, we call them PDR 1500s. They measure the particle mass, uh, of well, the mass of particles, solid particles in the air, which is what we're mainly looking at, particulate matter, um, through light scattering. Um, we held these instruments and we sat on each platform and there was over 70 platforms we did for this study for about five to 10 minutes at a time before getting on the train and going to the next station and coming out and measuring it again. Uh, and we logged all that data and then I did all the data analysis and um, that gives us the results we, we have in this paper. And by light, so you mentioned light. So was it, the, did the machines use light to sort of like see the actual particulates in the air? Well, yes, in, in, in a way, um, the uh, a particle uh, light beam hits the particles that are passing through the machine, um, and the particles. If the light hits a particle, it will scatter. It would cause the light to change direction, and we're basically measuring how much it changes direction. There's more particles there, the more uh, scattering it's going to be, uh, which should mean there's higher mass. When you say particles, can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Uh, the air is a mixture. It's a mixture of different gases, but it's also a mix, uh, mixture of liquids and solid particles, um, um, particles that like dust. Um, in this case, it could be subway dust uh, generated from whatever process in the subway, such as grinding wheels and stuff like that. Um, some some particles are generated from reactions in the air with, with, with um, different gases, It's even. Um, and these particles, you bring them in. They're entering your lungs and they can interact with your cells, they can enter your bloodstream, and a lot of them could actually have negative effects on our health. Some of the data that I saw in in that Guardian article was pretty wild. I saw that um, in on the Christopher Street subway station in Manhattan, essentially the levels of 
like particles in the air, the dangerous particles was 77 times higher than above ground, <laughs> which is wild. <laughs> um, is that is that differ hugely from what you were expecting? It differed by a lot. Um, of course, I wanted to help David with some of the measurements. So it ended up that I went down into Christopher Street with my colleague, Jonathan Fine, and we did all the measurements at the morning and evening rush hours. And when David gave us back the results, I mean, we were really shocked at how high the levels were. were. The levels were, as you said, 77 times above ground levels. They were as bad as maybe one of the worst days for air pollution in Beijing or Delhi. We, we were surprised. So when you're doing science and you want to do it right and you get a a single measurement like that, you go back and you repeat it. So David went back many times to to verify that this was really a true finding, that the pollution in this one particular subway station, which is a very old subway station, that it was very, very high. And do you did you know do you know what the particulates are, or is it just because like that much particulates you know is bad alone? Does it matter what's what it actually is made up it of? Really matters what it's made up of. Uh, we're just starting to do that. We know the particles have a lot of iron in them and a lot of organic carbon material, but we really don't know everything about them. That we, and that will make up David's PhD thesis over the next year or two. And having, like, how does that affect people's health um, when the particulate matter is that concentrated and that high? It's a great question. We we don't really know. Um, as air pollution researchers, we believe that not only does the dose make the poison, but what the particles are made of also affects the toxicity of the particles. Above ground particulate matter, matter they've determined that there are increases in deaths and illnesses from cardiovascular origins. Same thing for pulmonary origins increased asthma incidents and visits to the ER. So there is just a handful, less than a handful of studies that have looked at the health effects of subway particles. And again, that will be David's life for the next two years, probably. Um, And thank you for that work, because that's important. Um, Is there anything that can be done to improve the air quality, or are we all just sort of, well, that's what it is? (laughs) David? Well, we well, it's it's best to actually know what the sources are, and we're starting to work on that right now. Um, we we have looked at a little bit of what the what the what type of iron is in the subway, what minerals is the iron part of, and we're finding that a lot of particles, hematite and magnetite, are a lot of them are generated by high energy processes, which we're thinking is just the grinding of the wheels against the rails or the brakes against the wheels and stuff like that. Uh, but a lot of it is a lot of iron that's present is basically rust, which is which means that the that iron was sitting there in the station uh, for long periods of time, uh, which allowed it to rust. Uh, and that's that's more than half of the particle of the iron particles we see in air, and iron makes up about fifty percent of the concentrations we see. Um, one simple way to fix that is just to simply clean up the stations, clean up the tracks, because a lot of this dust is just resuspended after trains come by, and that's what gets put into the air. Um, 
there's always you always been better ventilation in the subways. Um, I know um, DC subways plan to put in better ventilation um, as it will. They, they told us in response to our article. Um, just also in China, you have um, they have they put screen doors between the tracks and the platform. Uh, so when a train comes in, the, the screen doors screen doors open. Where the train doors open, you get on in and out. And those screen doors block the dust from actually from the tracks from entering the platform, which greatly reduces the uh, levels. Um, there may be other ways in which we can improve air quality. One way is get rid of the diesel maintenance trains, which uh, may not contribute a lot, but they do contribute something to the air pollution. Um, what was that? I'm sorry, David. You said diesel? Yeah. So so in most, sub, well, definitely in New York subway systems, they have diesel trains that come by late at night uh, to do all the maintenance. Um, and we, you know, when they, when they are present, we do see uh, particulate matter levels spike. Um, and that's just, that's just one thing that might be contributing to the poor air quality over time. Um, and, you know, maybe this is just, we don't really know, you know, where the sources are in particular. We have guesses, but maybe you just get better, better material won't break down as easily or, you know, we can collect, somehow collect the dust as it's been generated. Mm, thank you. And um, you mentioned DC responded to the the article that had been published. Um, has, has the MTA in, in New York tried to, or mentioned anything or have you heard anything about any of their, of their plans? We have not heard from the MTA. We've heard from the TW100 union that works in the MTA We've mm-hmm. heard from the Port Authority, New York, New Jersey, the Transit Authority, and we've heard from the union, the railroad unions for the path. The MTA is the only one we haven't been in discussions with. For for us commuters or the people, you know, anyone who uses the train, I what you were mentioning a lot of people who are down there all the time, and I can imagine that people who work down there are the, the most risk for any sort of health um, effects that that may cause. But how about... Do you know if, if people are down there for short spurts of time, how that may differ and how, you know, how much that they should be concerned about their own lung health? That's, that's the best question out there. So, and we don't know the answer. And that's what we want to study and look at the health effects on commuters and on workers. Based on what we know from outdoor particles, even these 15-minute or 30-minute exposures might have effects, but mostly on susceptible people. You know, when we were down in Christopher Street, my colleague has mild asthma, and he he said he could feel his chest tightening while we were down there. So potentially asthmatics, children, pregnant folks, they might have they might be the most susceptible to the effects of these high levels of particles in the subways. And is there anything people can do to protect themselves? Well, wearing a mask. So as a side effect, wearing masks during the COVID pandemics has probably helped. The subway systems supposedly are looking at filtration improvements in the actual cars for the purpose of increased ventilation and getting the COVID particles out of the air while people are riding. People would do spend most of their time on the train car versus standing on the platform. So these things help. I can't, I can't think of anything else except 
trying to make your visits as short as possible and wearing a mask. So interesting. It's so interesting because, you know, as someone who's been in those subway stations, it can feel very oppressive, but you sort of shrug it off, be like, oh, you know, whatever. But to actually have a number associated with it, like this is how bad it is, actually. This is not just in your head. It is is very help. I mean, I think it's it's super helpful and I think it's super important for people to understand what's actually happening in their environment. Do you know the difference between, you know, what the air quality would be inside of a train car versus outside on the platform? Is that something you looked at at all? David? Well, the train cars, we know they have their own ventilation system. Their doors are closed, so not much, not as much air is com- coming in. Their concentrations on the, on the train cars are much lower than we see on the platforms for the most part. The um, concentrations in the train car can actually does actually fluctuate. It does it fluctuates based on which stations are just stopped in because the doors open, and the air comes in. So it is a great amount of variability, but it's it's sometimes the air the concentrations on the platform are twice as high. Sometimes it's ten times as high. It really varies in where you are in the train line especially if you're above ground or below ground. Um, but their quality is much worse on the platform than we see on the train car. So above ground has better air quality, even when you're on, inside the train. Yes. It's just an open air atmosphere. The particles can disperse. And when you're on the train, the between stations, you have the fresh air come in and they can actually dilute the um, wave it's on the train itself. Well, thank you so much, David and Terry, for coming in to talk about this work. Um, I know that this past year you brought up COVID already, Terry, has been uh, a year where many of us have been thinking about um, air ventilation and air quality in a way that we've, I, you know, never thought about before. And, and to you guys, this is the work that you guys do um, all the time. So uh, just thank you so much to, for coming on and, and talking about this. And um, I think my last question for you guys is what's next uh, for either this work in particular or, um, you know, other focus, uh, other focused work that you guys have coming up? Well, we'd like to really define whether the particles in the subways are more toxic than what we breathe above ground. And we want to see what the health effects are by measuring lung and, and heart function in workers and commuters. So we're going to be doing some human studies, asking volunteers to do what we did, which might be sitting in rush hour in um, different subway stations for an hour. We're also going to try to expand our studies to other cities such as Toronto and different cities in, in Canada because they have different systems for electrifying the cars. Montreal, for instance, doesn't have steel wheels. So there's different places where it'd be, it'd be very interesting and for David and myself fun to, to look into what's going on in the air quality for those different systems. Also, uh, I think we would also try to def- more definitively define what the sources are, uh, mainly through more composition analysis. We can maybe trace what's the, the type of particle in the air to different piece, you know, the different composition of, of the potential sources. Uh, we can maybe match the iron in the air to the iron, let's say, in the rails or the wheels or something like that, um, which if we know the sources, then that gives us someone a target to um, to try to remediate the air quality in these locations. Thank you so much, um, Terry and David again, and and Judy for coming on to, to help introduce everyone. 
the type of work you do, I want to ask if, you know, if people are interested in reading more about this, is there, would you recommend a place online for them to, to go or is, is it sort of, I, I'm not, <laughs> as someone who doesn't read a lot of scientific papers, I'm not sure if there's a clear answer to that, but I, I want to throw it to you guys in case there is. Yeah, I, that's a tough question. One could go online to Environmental Health Perspectives, which is published by NIEHS, and get the original article. There's also some news articles throughout the internet that have covered our study and other studies. But for general layman discussion of this, I'm not sure there is anything yet. Well, that's what we're here for, is to help <laughs> bridge that bridge that gap. Um, well, again, well, thank you so much, everyone. Um, for joining. And again, again, Judy, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. Awesome. And thank you everyone for that great segment. Definitely more to consider. I know all New Yorkers are concerned as we all go back to our uh, regularly scheduled programs, how we're really consuming life as New Yorkers. You know, I think that COVID really enlightened the fact that there's so many things wrong with environmental justice here and um, a lot of just really um, ground level issues that we face as New Yorkers. And we need to be more cognizant and confident in our ability to, to overcome these challenges with the help of our local elected officials. So good work and definitely more things that we need to discuss in the coming future. We're going to go ahead and take our first musical break. The track, the first track comes from an artist called Novel. And the song is called The Sickness. How appropriate. We'll be right back. Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment. Um, this story is coming from uh, two different sources. The first one is the GRIO. The article is titled 1619 UNC Alumni on the Hannah-Jones Support. The author of that one is uh, Biba Adams. And the second one is coming from the Huffington Post. Um, this article is called Nicole Hannah-Jones, 1619 Tenure, UNC, and this one is by Kimberly Richard. So members of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill community continue to speak out in support of an investigative journalist, Nicole Hannah-Jones, amid a tenure controversy that has made national news this week. Uh, UNC announced last month that Nicole Hannah-Jones would be joining the school in July as the night chair in race and investigative journalism a position held by someone recognized as a highly respected news leader 
who brings, quote, insights about journalism and support, elevating it in the academy. On Wednesday, 1,619 UNC alumni and students took out a two-page ad in the News and Observer to express their support for Hannah Jones. On Tuesday, more than 250 advocates, including athletes, academics, writers, and other public figures, signed a letter in support of Hannah Jones that was published in a route. So basically, she was offered this position, but was not offered tenure. So that is what the uproar is about. Um, there's many speculations. I'll continue to read this. I just want to give us some context. The UNC Chancellor, Kevin M. Gushewitz, and the UNC Board of Trustees Chair, Richard Y. Stevens, addressed concerns about Hannah Jones' not tenured status during a virtual press briefing last week. He said that tenure candidates are proposed by various schools at the university and those recommendations are sent to the UNC provost. The provost then provides the board with those recommendations for tenure, but the board of trustees university affairs committee vets those candidates before the full board gets the opportunity to vote and approve them. Duckett, who chairs the committee, asks UNC provost Robert Blone, to postpone the review of Hannah Jones' candidacy prior to the full board meeting where tenure candidates were reviewed in January. Quote, in his communication to Provost, Trustee Ducky asked questions regarding the tenure candidacy of Nicole Hannah Jones and suggested more time to postpone the review to consider those questions of her overall application. That is not unusual action for the committee, is what he said. NYC Policy Watch, a news outlet from North Carolina Justice Center, reported on Wednesday that the resubmission does not guarantee that the Board of Trustees will take a vote for Hannah Jones' tenure status. Three unnamed members of the board told the publication that they expect her candidacy to come to a full vote of the board by the end of June. UNC did not immediately respond to the request for comment. The New York Times Magazine's 1619 Project, which examined anti-Black racism and how the legacy of slavery plagues America today, notably drew outrage from conservatives, including former President Donald Trump and the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. UNC faculty joined a chorus of people who charged that the board's failure to offer Hannah Jones a tenured position upon appointment was politically influenced. The faculty also pointed out that their statement last week that two night chairs who immediately preceded Hannah Jones received tenure upon appointment. Susan King, the dean of UNC's Hussman School of Journalism and Media, has been very vocal about her support for Hannah Jones receiving this deal. So basically, the point of the story is that um, I don't know if many of you, our listeners, have are familiar with the 1619 Project, but it was a huge project put together in collaboration for many years with Hannah Jones and many people who helped her put it together, which challenged the founders of the American democracy. It basically stated that, um, you know, the idea of Christopher Columbus and the settlers was not the beginning of America. The beginning of America began started with slavery and that we should acknowledge the founders of America as African people who built the country and stabilized it to become the world power that it is. So this is a very interesting topic. Uh, One, in the midst of everything that we've been going on with Rachel's tensions this week in the one year anniversary of George Floyd's death, the not passing of the George Floyd Policing Act, and also the questions in Congress concerning qualified immunity, 
this was a piece of literature, media, film, um, just an overall uh, contribution uh, by this journalist that was all encompassing of what actually happened in 1619. It was a world-renowned um, article, documentary, and just overall media presentation for us to acknowledge it in 2019. Uh, it had global reach and the amount of work, I don't know if any of you have seen it, that went into uh, the historical background for this piece was incredible. So Hannah Jones, um, can we just say she is definitely an expert on this topic, definitely someone who deserves to be in this role. As an alumni of this school, the fact that she is going through this is kind of outrageous because she is one of their esteemed um, alumni who have made global contributions, including all of these major prizes she's won, awards, and recognition she's gained. But yet when they offered her the position, they did not consider her for tenure. What do you ladies think about this? I'm not an expert on academia, um, but I think tangentially I've heard things I've heard is that it's like an extremely political world. Um, Who gets hired, who gets tenure, who gets a job where. And um, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some sort of political pressure. I don't know how likely or, you know, I'm I'm not there and I haven't you I haven't read too much about it. But, um, you know, it certainly sounds like she's an expert in the field. Um, as you mentioned many times and in a field that um, many people are in this country aren't comfortable talking about however much they need to talk about it and yeah it's a shame I'll probably talk about it next week or in one of the coming weeks but there's been a coordinated push by a lot of lawmakers to smear like critical race theory and there's a lot going on right now, at, like on the state level, on local levels and around the country to try to suppress teaching about, you know, the history of racism in this country and how foundational it is and also how it still basically determines a lot of what goes on in the country to this day. Like there's a lot of um, power behind suppressing that type of information. Um, I myself have not read the 1619 project or engaged with a lot of the, like, I know there's a podcast, like there's other um, ways that you can engage with the work. Uh, I do. I used to follow uh, Nicole Hannah Jones on Twitter. I'm personally someone who is not, how do I say like, I like my sense of like pride in my history being like an African-American person is not about having built the country because I I feel like, you know, if, if part of that narrative is like serving in wars, like where you're hurting other people, like that's not something I consider to be part of like my heritage that I'm proud of. And I know that she is kind of more like a, like she's a fairly like li- uh, liberal person, not like super left. But I don't. I think the people that are giving her a hard time about tenure, I don't even. I don't think they're looking at it like from the left of her for that reason. I think it's coming more so from the right that they don't. They don't want to have like job security for someone who is committed to talking about race in this way consistently. So yeah, like I. I agree with you, Emily, that it does seem to me to be like a politically motivated decision and one that's part of a bigger wave that's happening in the country. 
That's a great analysis. Um, the, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this story to light, I work in academia. Uh, I have for many years. Um, academia is a free space for people to explore uh, the depths of all type of consciousness and history uh, from a real ground level to, you know, all the way up to an esteemed academic level. And to me, to limit someone whose insight obviously is all encompassing, the 1619 Project was a great work. And I say that because I've actually viewed it and participated in some of um, the commentary and events that happened around it. Um, it was a major year for African-Americans. A lot of African-Americans went home to Ghana to kind of uh, document their pilgrimage uh, 400 years later. So this was a huge time in history for African-Americans, which is what the nature of the project was primarily about. Um, and I think a lot of people who may not have explored it um, don't understand that this is not a um, spew against the rhetoric about American history that is Christopher Columbus and all the other people that so-called discovered America. What it is is a, a homage being paid to the people who were here first, who built the land figuratively and literally. And this is the type of history that we don't see in public schools. You got to search for it in college. And many people who are above the age of 40 never even were privy to it if they didn't go after it. So it's an important work. And I'm bringing this to light today because I feel like in order for us to really make some, you know, strides in this country to right some of the wrongs, we have to start to fix some of these stories that are being shared. You know, really real reform begins with going back and then going forth. There's an African principle called Sankofa that says that we have to look at our past to understand our future. It's really fucking uncomfortable to look at America's past and say that, oh, the slaves built the country by hand. The slaves built the White House. The slaves built this, that, and the other. And all of the other things that African-Americans who were enslaved contributed to the beginnings of this country. It's difficult. It's hard for any of us, white, black, or in between, or any other race from anywhere else to really acknowledge the truth in that. But I do believe in 2021, what we need to do to really move this concept of race forward is to acknowledge the fact that the history we've been told is incorrect. That what we're teaching the children is not the truth. And if we're really gonna move forward with ending systemic racism, we gotta go to the root, y'all. We gotta go back and actually see what happened. We have to acknowledge it. And it's not making people of today responsible or accountable for what our ancestors did is a true acknowledgement of what the effects of systemic racism have been. So if we go back and really look at the history, if we go back and really acknowledge the contributions of people who were not white in America for what they really were, not just, you know, being the sidestep of history or something that happened, but the actual people who blood, sweat, and tears built America brick by brick. And with the, with the compilation of all of the people who came here, right? The immigrants and everyone else who made the America what it is today. We need to really just kind of drill down to the basic facts and retell this story. So then moving forward, we're dealing with the truth. The truth is hard to deal with. But if we stop, if we don't acknowledge it because of political reasons, we're really just doing a disjustice to ourselves. And that is the reason that I brought this story today. Um, I just really want to bring some light to the work that was done on the 1619 Project. It's not easy to do this work, y'all. 
it's hard to find these records. The shit is buried. It's not easy to find. You know, you have to literally go through family by family, go through the South and really research and go back. Go back to Ghana. Go back to all of the slave ports to really find this history. I just want to give her her flowers now. What she did and contributed to what we know as history was major. And in my life, I haven't seen such a contribution. So I want to shout her out. And I also want to just make sure we are aware that writing the wrongs of history, start by going back and retelling stories for the truth, offering it to the people so they can make their own understanding of what really happened. But we have to redirect this energy to the truth and really just examine what really happened. Um, I think the thing about this, um, I'm not going to speak too much more on like what on the project itself and like what the criticisms are are of it but I think whenever you see someone that is as big a name as she is and as um, visible as she is I see these types of things as like making an example like they there seems to have been like a campaign to get her to not get this tenor tenure track position so it's like if someone like her can be put in a position where like they're not really fully secure in their employment. Like imagine what happens if you're not a well-known journalist and you're trying to talk about race or um, other forms of discrimination or bigotry in this country. Like what do you think these institutions are going to do to you or take from you or stop you from doing? Um, So yeah, I hope that it doesn't have that kind of a chilling effect on other people that want to teach about these issues and dive deep into them and challenge what the um, mainstream narrative has always been. That's a really good point, Jasmine. And I think that's the overall message of this story. You know, it is not, um, when I went to undergrad and, and as I was graduating, I really wanted to be a professor of Black Studies just to tell the stories, to tell, to write the stories, to give, you know, people insights into the black experience that weren't offering the textbooks. Um, I totally understand the plight of this woman and many like her. And I would just really hate for the one institution where we can move forward academia, the one institution that is designed to enlighten people to have a greater understanding of the world as at a at, 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 at its massive consumption, right? That's the opportunity for you to make your own decisions based on what you learn. We can't limit the truth in those circles about any history. We can't do that. We have to allow for it to happen. And that's how I feel about this. So, you know, a shout out to the alumni though, the UNC alumni for coming together um, strategically to challenge this, strategically to support one of their own, uh, coming together as professionals to really challenge this decision and organizing themselves for the people who are current students at the UNC. Uh, One of the board members is actually the student body president. uh, And he made many statements stating that he feels it's very important for the current students and the future students of UNC to be privy to their alumni who are esteemed and who have this knowledge and who have done this work. It's important to him as a millennial and someone who is driving our future. That is the role of academia in our society, I think, to be uh, a greater presence that helps us all to come gain our own understanding and provide more information that we weren't before. Let's just support this sister and many others like her who are trying to tell the truth. So we're going to go ahead and pop it to our next music break. 
Uh, I love this song. The next one is a classic by a classic R&B diva, Miss Aretha Franklin. This track is called A Rose is Still a Rose. We'll be right back. Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now we have Jasmine with our international news segment. Take it away. Uh, so what I'm going to be doing is uh, most of this information is coming from an Al Jazeera article entitled Why Belarus Risks the Wrath of the World to Arrest an Activist. It was written by Mansour Miravalov on May the 24th. Uh, so just some background um, as far as who Raman Pratasevich is. Um, he is a 26-year-old journalist and blogger that has been protesting against the current Belarusian president named Alexander Lukashenko. Um, Pratasevich was kicked out of a university and fled to Poland um, because he was afraid of being arrested since he had been protesting against the current regime um, since he was a teen. In, in 2020, uh, Raman was the editor of The Nexta, which is a Telegram and YouTube channel that covered and helped coordinate massive, months-long opposition protests after President Lukashenko's sixth presidential election in August 2020. Um, so the current president of Belarus is Alexander Lukashenko, like I said. He is a former collective farm manager, and he has been in charge of Belarus since 1994. So this is, he was in charge of the country since like before this activist was born. And he has been called Europe's last dictator. His opponents and Western governments view most of his election victories as rigged and unfair. So back to Nexta, which is the um, Telegram and YouTube channel that, um, Protosevich used to edit. The name Nexta is a pun on the words next, as in generation next, and Neta, or someone in Belarusian, as in anonymous. Uh, the channel began operating in 2015, and it was mostly an outlet for music videos. But one of the songs on the channel, called No Choice, described Lukashenko's presidential campaigns and immediately drew the ire of security agencies. 
um, the channel started to release more political content. Uh, for example, a video about the death penalty in Belarus that was watched more than 5.5 million times. Um, there were anti-Lukashenko protests that erupted in August 2020, and Nexta became the main mouthpiece for these protests. So anyone could anon anonymously contribute text messages, photos, or videos to the channel, which made it an effective tool for thousands of protesters rallying throughout Belarus and facing riot police who beat up, detained, and tortured them. Uh, the protesters using this next to feed, they could learn on the go whether police were approaching them. They could flee and regroup and find out where their detained friends were being taken and what was happening to them. And so the channel was like symbolic of a potential victory over um, Lukashenko's regi regime. So between August and September of last year, it actually looked like the president's administration was potentially going to fall because even some of his key supporters started to join in anti-Lukashenko rallies and strikes. Um, however, during the anti-Lukashenko protests, um, Russia provided aid um, under Vladimir Putin in the form of hefty loans and dispatched a team of experienced journalists from Kremlin-controlled television networks who helped change the coverage of the protest in Belarusian state media. Um, and as an aside, Belarus has been largely dependent on Russia economically for many years, um, and that's also their main ally. Most of Belarus's exports go there, and many Belarusians work in Russia in construction or agriculture. Um, in October of this past year, a court in Minsk which is the uh, capital of Belarus, outlawed the Nexta channel as quote-unquote extremists and listed its staffers as terrorists. So that's the background, and that leads us to the recent events on Sunday, May 23rd. President Lukashenko had a military jet forcibly land a passenger airliner because of a bomb threat that turned out to be fake. So um, Raman Protasevich was on a Lithuanian-bound Ryanair flight from Greece. But when the flight entered um, Belarusian airspace, it was diverted by the military jet. And once it was landed in the Belarusian capital, the police got on and arrested um, Raman and also his girlfriend. He said, they'll execute me here to a fellow passenger as law enforcement officers were about to take him away. Um, the crime of extremism in Belarus is punishable by death, and Belarus is Europe's last country where death row inmates are executed at dawn on their knees with a gunshot in the back of their heads. Um, so this, he, he is not the first person to be targeted by Lukashenko. Like there's been many political purges, but this um, extreme of interrupting an international flight between two EU nations with a fake bomb threat um, is extremely um, shocking, like even to other victims of his prior purges. There are some people who are confused as to why Lukashenko would Lukashenko would do this since the protests have largely been quieted down. Um, but there are some Belarusians who believe that it's just a matter of revenge. 
Everyone that was on the Next to Channel team relocated to Poland as their family members were um, bearing the brunt of Lukashenko's anger and threats. Protasevich's father was a is a retired army colonel, and he was stripped of his rank in early May, and he has also fled the country. Um, Igor Taishkevich, a Belarusian analyst based in Ukraine, told Al Jazeera, this is a political message to the Belarusian political migrants of the new wave, and on the other hand, to his supporters, the so-called electoral swamp. The message is that the government is strong and may get to anyone. Um, so that's the end of the summary of what has happened to this journalist so far. Um, but recently there has been footage of him um, reading off what seems to be prepared statements where he's saying that he's being treated well by the police and doesn't have any health issues. However, like you can see in the video that he does have some bruising and his fam his parents are saying that he does not look or sound like himself. Uh, our Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has condemned Belarus Belarus's diversion of the commercial plane. By President Biden has called Pratasevich's detainment a direct affront to international norms, and the EU is currently pursuing um, economic sanctions against Belarus, and I believe they're also looking to close their airspace. It was, I don't know if any of you have seen the footage or the images of what these jets look like, but it really makes your skin just go cold to imagine, you know, like you think that you're safe and then, you know, because you, someone resents that you speak up for yourself, like you are not safe anywhere, like even on an airplane outside of the country. Yeah, I had I had seen like the news alert about the the airplane getting grounded, but I didn't know all those details. And I mean, extremely disturbing. Uh, you said that word so many times, and that's all I could just you know think about. Like I think you know, post nine eleven, like air flights around the world like are an extremely like serious business, right? Like you don't you don't mess around on an airplane, right? And just to, um, to hear that someone's manipulating as you, even with a bomb threat, like that sort of like paranoia to go after like a political dissident into, yeah, it's it totally like to upset like international boundaries in that way as well is extremely disturbing on top of the fact, like it's just the whole, the the safety of the political dissidents themselves like what a what a horrible situation i'm very concerned like for, you know like i i do think it's it's worth pointing out that this is a it's one individual and the way that it happened was so extraordinary and so bold yeah that it's obviously grabbed a lot of international attention and it it's it's freaky because it does make you wonder like what are you daring the international yeah. community to do it's like yeah i'm gonna come and do this because i don't like this 20 some year old that mm -hmm. led these protests but i think it's it bears keeping in mind like just like with um nicole hannah jones like we don't care how visible you are or how you know how many accolades you have like we still have the power to say like no mm -hmm. and you know, it's like there's so many people will never know their names that speak up and they disappear, like mm -hmm. literally, like they are spirited away, their family never sees them again. So yeah, like he's just, he's one of like 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions that have had this fate. So I'm hoping that he, um, he and his girlfriend, um, Sophia, I think her name is, I hope that they make it out alive, but I, who knows? Stories like this make you realize how small the world is, you know, like dictatorship is a real thing. And I think as Americans, it's hard for us to understand sometime and actually like absorb because the idea of democracy is so indoctrinated in us. We actually believe in it. Um, when you hear stories like this that are so uh, clear about how, you know, people's rule can be, it makes you understand that we all must really think about this for the greater good. And I appreciate you bringing the story to light because the reality is we need to be aware. We need to be aware how these things go over, whether it's here or there or anywhere, because it ultimately affects the entire chain. And I just really feel bad for people who are up under a dictatorship rule who don't have an opportunity to do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I also think it's important not to, like when when I read this story or was hearing about it, I also thought of the scientist, I don't remember her name, but she was um, just a scientist doing work on the coronavirus in Florida. And the feds came to her home because she was put disseminating information about like what the real COVID numbers were. And they came after her, like she was a drug Lord and they locked her up. So this to me, it's like, I think Belarus, you know, it has this name as like, it's the last dictatorship in Europe. And it, it seems so extreme, like this person being in power for 30 years, but this trend, like this authority, authoritarianism and government overreach and suppressing dissidents like it's happening all over and it's just it's very scary like the the creeping rise of it everywhere so yeah i hope like this is bad but i hope people realize you know this also happens in other types of ways like within our own communities it might not be in the air but it might become that soon um, there's also a documentary that I saw a few years ago. Um, it's part of the reason why I picked this story, because I remembered the documentary. It's called Dangerous Acts, Starring the Unstable Elements of Belarus. It's a 2013 documentary film that's about the illicit Belarus free theater um, during the political revolution of independence in that country. And I remember there was a joke well, not not a very funny joke that they say, like in, in Belarus, we say, you know, when the person wins the presidential election, they say, oh, like we have good news and we have bad news. The good news is you won. The bad news is no one voted for you. And this is something that came out like eight years ago, but clearly like there's a whole generation of people that this is, this regime is all that they know. Um, so yeah, like prayers up for Raman Protasevich and also to all the activists, organizers, journalists around the world that are doing what needs to be done to stand up to these people because it's, it's not easy and they do it at great risk to themselves and their loved ones. So like they're to be commended, to be emulated and you know we hope for their safe return. Thank you so much for that story, Jasmine, important work that we need to pay attention to. And finally, Emily, can you grace us with the good news, please? Yes. All righty. So I got information for this story from a May 26th New York Times article by Alex Marshall, Elian Peltier, 
or Peltier and Elaine Sciolino, uh, titled Louvre Gets Its First Female Leader in 228 Years. Um, so Laurence Descartes will become the first female president in the history of the Louvre, which is the most visited museum in the world. Uh, pre-pandemic, it had about 10 million visitors a year. Uh, she is currently the president of the Musée d'Orsay and the Musée de l'Orangerie, uh, two other museums in Paris, and she will start the new gig in September. Uh, because the Louvre is owned by the French state, the museum's leader is actually appointed by the French president. So that's just a little fun fact there. Um, quote, she has been praised for exhibitions made in collaboration with partners such as the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the, uh, I'm pronouncing this wrong, but Thyssen Bornemisa Museum in Madrid. Uh, the 2019 show Black Models from Jericho, Jericho to Matisse which focused on previously overlooked black figures in French art, was developed with the Wallach Art Gallery in New York, uh, is considered a landmark of her tenure. A great museum must face history, including by looking back at the history of our own institutions, she told Agence France Press in an interview in April. Uh, quote, Descartes is among few women to have led major French museums. That Darth is a consequence of official institutions not reaching out to women enough or not giving them enough confidence, Descartes said in a 2018 interview with the New York Times. But there's also the issue of self-censorship, of women thinking, I'm not up to that kind of job, she said. Uh, women need to overcome their personal doubts and to tell themselves, I'm capable of this. It's coming at the right time in my life and in my career. I'm ready for this, Descartes added. Um, so I personally, as a little note on that last thing, she's a uh, quote by her. I personally think that women are purposefully raised to have that sort of thought process of I can't do this job. Um, so don't be too hard on women for feeling like that. But also, I think we can all take inspiration from Laurence Descartes and learn to break ourselves out of that mentality. And also huge congratulations to her. Um, I'm excited to uh, hear more about, you know, the lens she's bringing to that job. Pretty exciting. And shout out to all the women, okay? Can we just do that for a second? That ass, because we had a couple of really dynamic ones this week on the show. So that's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. We really appreciate you listening and supporting the show. You can catch all of our episodes and our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, on Spotify, or anywhere where you get your podcasts. We're going to play you out with our last track of the day. And I love this track. Just an overall good song. This song is Lauren Hill, Forgive Them Father. We'll see you next week. Bye. Happy Memorial Day. Although them again, we will never, never, never trust. Them not know what them do. Big out to yai while I'm sticking like glue. Blinking green while I'm plotting for you. True. Uh-huh.